When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. The end of the week. So I have grabbed our co-founder, Piers Curran, to discuss some of the major themes over the past five days. And of course, we are going to talk about Google releasing their so-called chat GPT killer. (laughs) Uh, So I'll look to explain a little bit behind uh, the technology. How is it the same? Is it different to chat GPT-4? Also, we'll look to dive into a little bit of background about why people are quite excited about this, why some people are criticizing Google, saying that this is fake news in regards to their um, viral video, What the Quack. I know you saw that, Piers. Um, so we can discuss that as well. Then also I wanted to discuss this idea, because I wrote a post about it on LinkedIn earlier this week, on first mover status to kind of step away from this headline a little bit after we discuss it and then look at, can Microsoft maintain that? And I've got a few examples about some very commonly used products that we all use and consume and services. Uh, And some might surprise you that they weren't actually the ones that dominate your thinking, the ones that actually kick-started the kind of revolution of certain technologies. So we'll do that. And then also um, we want to talk about some other developments on the AI side as well. There's There's been so many. Um, AMD rolled out their new rival to NVIDIA's AI chip. We've had Meta release, I think, 20 new AI features. Uh, so I can I can run you through a couple of those. And then also to dovetail this, Microsoft's partnership with OpenAI is said to now be facing a full-blown UK antitrust investigation just three weeks after we had that big episode of disruption uh, at OpenAI. And so we'll discuss that. But before we begin and, and kind of focus on that technology narrative, 
let's just talk markets and macro. Somewhat old school now, <laughs> talking about this stuff. Uh, but more traditional markets. We've just had the release of the latest U.S. non-farm payrolls. So this is the major U.S. jobs report. Uh, typically comes out start of every month. And it's always been seen as kind of a good insight as to the health of the U.S. economy. So I'll run you through the numbers, Piers, and perhaps you can give me a bit of a take on how the market initially has has received this information. So headline change in non-farm payrolls. So this is your first main figure. Came in at 199,000. That's jobs. Above expectations of 180,000. The average hourly earnings, which people obviously look at quite closely for indications of inflation, was 0.4%, 0 0.1 higher than expected month for month, in line, 4% on the year on year. And the US unemployment rate tracked down to 3.7%. Mm. That was not expected. Yeah. Expected was at 3.9%. So how did the markets take this? Uh, well, the um, usual sort of uh, knee-jerk, um, you know, super immediate um, I would call it algo-driven uh, reaction. So things like the NASDAQ index, for example, looking at the futures, um, dropped quite sharply in the immediate aftermath. And I mean immediate, like we're talking microseconds after the data and then the seconds and then the minutes following. So it dropped from about, let's just call it 15,950 down to 15,880. You've got a 70 point sell off pretty much in a straight line. Um, now, here we are because we are literally what 20, uh, 29 minutes after the data, and uh, the Nasdaq's back to where it started. So, <laughs> so all in all, quick, sharp shimmy to the downside, and then pop back to where it, where it began. So, just Which, to um, explain to people, if you were. Because you you were an intraday trader, yeah, meaning that you would be trading sometimes incredibly short time frames. So very different from say, inve traditional investing styles. Yeah. So who exactly? You said there there could be algos there. Yeah. So who who else is trading this? And what what are like asset managers or hedge fund managers? Well, thinking about yeah, this no, sort of thing. All right. So this is a good. Yeah. I mean, I. I mean, I literally used to trade this sort of data for a living. I mean, this was my absolute, you know, bread and butter. It was the, the you know, there were a few moments in every calendar month where there's scheduled events happening, normally around economic data, like the big, big stuff, or, you know, central bank announcements, that kind of stuff. So there's always these, these dates in your diary that you know that there's going to be really important information coming to market and that historically this information has had the ability to drive big movement okay so definitely the u.s labor market report each month it's normally the first friday of the month here we are on the 8th of december which happens to be the second friday uh, but that's very unusual that it's almost always the first friday um and yeah you just get an update on the labor market from the month before the labor market being a super important component of the economic machine uh, and that's because these western economies these developed economies are consumer driven so it's all about the consumer and right how much money are they earning and of course they need a job for that and so and this this report covers 
you know, the unemployment rate, it covers the number of jobs being created. That's what we call the non-farm payrolls figure. And then it covers the wage increases so, and by how much your wage is going up. So all this gets packaged up and it's really important information. Good, good update on the health of the US economy. So we all get super excited and amped up as traders, anticipation. You know, you spend the whole morning prepping, looking back at the month before, looking back at the years, you know, the months going back, trying to figure out what's going to happen. And then it gets hyped and it gets hyped to the point when the moment comes. It's almost like psychologically, you absolutely have to trade here because you've spent so much time and energy in preparing. It would be annoying to just sit there and do nothing because that would be a waste of all that time and energy. So you almost feel compelled to trade, which in of itself is a bit of a pitfall for a trader. But um, these days, I say these days, I mean, I used to trade this before algos, right? Before computers were were around. And it used to be, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. It used to be pretty easy money these days because <laughs> you'd get, because of people like you who are good at their job, right? You used to announce the news to me uh, as it's flashing up on Bloomberg and then you react. And if it's good news or bad news, you, you know, you're starting to think, is the market going to go up or down? And then you buy or you sell and you make money. Unfortunately, these, um, these whiz kids with their Python and their coding skills built some uh, machines to do it faster so these days you'll see that um, the algorithmic trading systems will be the ones that are driving the reaction and it's fair you know any algorithm you have a, an input statement with then an output action so the statement that the human programs in is right if the non-farm payrolls data is higher than expected so that's what happened today what was expected was 180,000 jobs created. The number came in at an actual 199,000. So if the data's higher than expected, then do X. And then you program it to do X. In this case, given my NASDAQ example, it would be if the bond farm payrolls figure is higher than expected, then sell NASDAQ futures, which in itself might be a bit counterintuitive. Because hang on, more jobs created than expected. So that's good news, right? Good news for the economy. Surely good news for share prices. Shouldn't you be buying? Well, that would be your first mistake because you'll have just lost a lot of money if you were buying. They're selling because of the the, whole, the much bigger argument, which is about the Federal Reserve and their interest rate situation. And are we at the top of the hiking cycle? When are they going to cut? So any information that's positive about the economy undermines the argument that we're going to start getting rate cuts in the first half of next year. So it's bad. It's actually bad news for stocks because of that monetary policy argument, even though you might think, hang on, good news for the economy. So it can be a bit, bit tricky to interpret how markets would behave off, off this kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, long and the short of it, all of this data that got announced today was, um, what you would describe as hawkish. It's all painting a stronger picture than expected. The labor market is stronger than we thought. That's when you look at the headlines, all right? So more jobs created. Also, the surprise, as you mentioned, the unemployment rate dropped. So that's good news, right, economically. Um, bad news for stocks because of the same um, monetary policy argument. But actually, when you when you kind of start delving into it, 
So the non-farm payrolls figure, that's kind of the most important. Um, yes, this month of, so the month of November was higher than expected, but it beat expectation by 19,000 jobs. But with this data, they also then update and revise the previous months as well. And actually what happened here is whilst November was 19,000 more, they've actually kind of countered that by revising down the figures from the previous couple of months by 35,000. So when you factor that in, actually, there's less jobs than was expected. So this is where the nuances of this data and the revisions and all the rest of it make make matters a little bit more complicated than than the headlines um paint so so let's just take um the summary being that this is slightly on the hawkish side yeah so i fairly robust job creation people getting paid that doesn't mean that then that the u.s economy is going to re-accelerate am i right we're still expecting u.s global growth and inflation, at least at this point, to slow Yes, in the period ahead. So can you start to explain then, does this mean we are heading for a soft landing? And if so, what, what, is, def- what is the definition of a soft landing? And what would be an example, just for a learning perspective, of a hard landing situation? Right. So this is where you're, it's kind of late stage of the cycle. I'm talking about the economic cycle now. And in the late stage of the cycle, the economy is slowing down. Or so, yeah, the growth, I should say, I should say the growth rate of the economy is slowing. So that's what's happening. In quarter three of this year, the US grew at 5.2%. Huge, right? It's now going at a slower rate than that. So it's slowing. So it's really about the speed of that descent. And where does the distent plateau? So a soft landing is controlled. It's a controlled descent. Um, hence the kind of analogy here with soft land, like landing an aircraft. It's a nice and steady and controlled descent. No one's panicking. No one's freaking out. Everyone's generally pretty happy. And then inflation comes back down. And then as we talked about the other week, real rates you know, the Fed can start cutting interest rates to kind of maintain real rates. And this would make people happy. And you kind of stick that soft landing where, or you could even argue no landing where there's no recession, right? So really historically, soft landing and hard landing would describe how big a recession would you get after the late phase of the cycle. And so a soft landing is a shallow, short recession before then we return to growth there's actually a decent chance we're not going to get a landing here at all. Like the the US will not go into recession. It will slow, plateau at a lower growth rate, and then maybe re-accelerate, depending on a whole bunch of factors, not more so than something we're going to talk about in a minute, which is AI, and can that lead to meaningful gains in productivity? Because that could be the next kind of of growth acceleration, you know, in the future. Um, So yeah, we're expecting a soft landing. We've had hard landings in the past. That's where the economy and the descent is. It becomes really fast and you're and it's out of control. You've your policy setters have lost control and you get a sharp descent. You do get panic. You tend to get a really deep recession. That's your hard landing scenario. China had this in 2015. Okay, there was a big 
go and Google it. The kind of major event of 2015 was the Chinese hard landing. Yeah, I've got this got the chart in front of me. So to give you a bit of context, so China at the moment is growing around five percent, just below. And so looking at GDP, but if yeah. you go back to kind of the early noughties, so in 2000, they were growing at around an average of kind of eight, nine percent. Through 2005 to 2007, growth rates got up to 15%. Right. Yeah. We then had the financial crisis and then it dipped, it dipped to about 7%. So yeah. halved. It then went from seven and very short period with that kind of big economic then turnaround coming out of that, that period. Um, up to about 12%. But herein kind of li lies the problem that you described. So in 2010, we're tracking at 12%, 12 and a half. And then by, I'd say 2013, we had fallen to about seven. And then by 2015, we're tracking gradually lower and lower through six. And people were panicking. Now at the time, I remember, I think it was Will, so our other co-founder, and he was trading U.S. equities. And that was a day when U.S. stocks were going limit down and we were seeing extreme yeah. downside volatility. So perhaps you could explain, like, why are U.S. stocks getting so badly beaten up when it's China's GDP that's, that's falling dramatically? Well, it's just the fact that those growth rates you've just been talking about through the noughties and even the 90s and the noughties, of course, it, it, that was China's arrival at the top table with regards to the size of their economy. So they're the second biggest economy in the world now, only only second to the United States. And so like, and, you know, the with all of that also came, you know, um, globalization, if you like, you know, the kind of breaking down of borders and free trade agreements and, you know, the, the whole global system became more integrated so any one component in that system, you know, if it happens positive or negative, can then have ripple effects into the rest of the system, right? And when you've got a big cog like China, the second biggest cog in the whole machine, mm. if that has a problem, then well, it, it actually and if it has if there's a risk of a really big problem, a hard landing, then that causes a genuine straight up risk to the ability for the entire economy uh, entire, entire global economy to function. So yeah, there was panic even in U.S. markets through that period. Okay, cool. Well, look, let's um, let's move on and let's talk a little bit about uh, a week in AI where we've had lots of different things coming out. It wasn't just Google and Gemini, uh, as we're going to discuss. You had a few other things on the chip makers and also the other big tech names like like Meta. But let's just focus on Google for a moment. So I'll just give you a bit of color. So what's come out, and timing is obviously key here. This is a race. And whilst OpenAI has been dealing with um, a very disruptive period in its short company's history, it's the time to strike if you're one of its major competitors. And this might lend its hand then toward why a day after this announcement of this new technology that's been released is getting slightly criticized for being a little bit fabricated in what they demonstrated uh, on the Google side. But this Gemini, Gemini AI, so basically it outperforms 
ChatGPT on over 30 out of 32 academic benchmarks. So this is one of the things that people were kind of coining as the headline. Right. However, this is your, your, your first kind of exhibit to, to dive into, which is you start looking at these line-by-line -line tests, and I'm not going to pretend that I understand even a single calculation or model or word of these tests because it's <laughs> far beyond my pay grade. But what I can fathom is that actually, yes, Gemini beats chat GPT-4 on almost all metrics. However, it beats it by a margin on most of around 0.2%. Okay. So it's absolutely uh, marginal. Look, a, win, a win's a win. <laughs> and one of the other things as well is that actually uh, Gemini is uh, broken down into three different levels. And this is pitching the yeah. uh, Gemini Ultra against what is now pretty much a year old OpenAI's GPT-4 model. So that's that also to consider. But in terms of these tests, I mean, what are they testing? Um, these test AI models, they're based on things like what would be equivalent of a high school physics exams, professional law, moral scenarios, all these sorts of things that how they use to determine a kind of AI's well intelligence, essentially. Now, one of the th main things here is about this idea of, well, what's the difference between ChatGPT and Gemini at the core? Now, this is where some of the terminology comes in. Uh, multimodal. Yeah. And this is when it's looking at ChatGPT as a modality-specific AI focused on text, whereas the reason why this what the quack hands-on video it's a six-minute video Google aired, basically, and it was all over the place online uh, earlier this week. And it's basically, I don't know if you've watched it. If you have anyone listening hasn't, you should. It's pretty mind-blowing. It's basically you're just talking to the computer as if it were human, and it's using multiple um, inputs. So your voice commands, um, it's using uh, imagery, it's using sound in order to make judgments about what you're going to do in your next move. And so they're playing games together and it's asking them to do stuff. He's the guy draws a squiggle and it starts guessing that it's, he's going to draw a duck and all this sort of stuff. It's pretty in incredible. Uh, up until the point where you click on the video, which obviously no one does, i.e. the YouTube description. Right. And you scroll on down to the bottom and you see a little <laughs> disclaimer that says, which no one saw yesterday which everyone's yeah. now talking about today <laughs> the day after and it says for the purposes of this demonstration latency has been reduced oh, and on. gemini outputs have been shortened for brevity wow okay so the video yesterday all the headlines all the people share on twitter and linkedin it was all like this is mind-blowing it's going to change the world this is the next ai evolution um <laughs> And yes, Google have come out and tried to fight it, but you know it's all a bit, it's all a bit, little bit. I think they've tried to take an opportune moment in time to strike. The yeah. other things, though, there are some serious parts to this. Um, personally, I don't think it's a massive step because I think it's just the next step. So I don't think it's not that OpenAI will also pursue the similar type of uh, multimodal capability. Yeah. But one of the things here that's interesting is is kind of twofold. Um, so Gemini, I talked about earlier the ultra version, which is the most advanced. There's also the nano version, 
which is designed specifically to run on mobile phones. Hmm. And one of the interesting things here is obviously Google has its own phone, yep. something which Microsoft doesn't have in the sense of Apple's the biggest, the, the, the two giants, if you like, at least on a global walk. Well, I suppose you can put Chinese manufacturers in here as well, but namely you're talking Google and, and Apple. Um, so Google's Pixel phone is getting more and more advanced. And one of the obviously benefits technologically is if you own the entire operating system yeah. and now the input of the AI technology, it can kind of, the, it's seamless integration in that way. And so, which will probably lead us on to some of the antitrust uh, uh, situation with Microsoft at the moment, because they don't technically own open AI like Google owns DeepMind, for example. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but two of the things here, so this this nano version for phones is quite interesting on two two fronts. One, running generative AI with the computing power available on mobile handsets. So when you think about it at the moment, you're having to, typically you can on your phone, but on your desktop, most probably co-piloting when you're in the workplace. Yeah. And then it's directly communicating with cloud on the servers, which are held by the big tech firms um so having this other kind of more low touch point can reduce costs on operating such systems that's one and two um the layers of assurance for those wanting to keep private data restricted to a device obviously one of the things is if you're just sharing everything with the cloud like i guess it's somewhat behavioral a lot of people are just born that way into this into the new norm which is sharing on the cloud but some people don't and so if you can contain it onto a mobile device there is options to keep it keep it there well you would like to think at least yeah. but yeah but, um so there's a couple couple of things there that i thought were were quite interesting but one thing i wanted to go back to was something i think we talked about a number of episodes ago when we were talking about open ai and microsoft which was first mover advantage now it got me thinking because i was like okay so open ai definitely have and microsoft I mean, this has been 2023, no doubt, the year of Microsoft and OpenAI. Artificial intelligence, number one subject. Yeah. Those two companies put NVIDIA in there. They have yeah. absolutely been the kings of the year. However, I was having a look back on what are other things that I use or we all use, and perhaps we can play a little game here of guess the first ones <laughs> but i but i don't want you to get too sentimental here because there's probably a lot of products and things that you might have owned back in your heyday um but here, here's a couple because you know first first mover isn't always the winner of long-term successor so first one is search engines i mean when you mm. think about it now obviously google absolutely dominates <laughs> but when you first used the internet where 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 did you go wasn't it um ooh, wasn't it Yahoo? I think Yahoo was early. So I used to oh. use Alta Vista. Oh wow. Alta Vista. Yeah. I mean I'm talking, I mean this was would have been nineteen ninety seven, something like that. Right. Uh Lycos, InfoSeek. <laughs> so some of those search engines, um Remember, they were pretty clunky at the time. Yeah. Even though you would think, you look at Google now and you think, well, that's not uh, UI-wise particularly complicated. It's a bank well, yeah. the bar. But believe me, they didn't used to look <laughs> quite so clean uh, back then. So that, that was that was one. The other one, social networking. 
Ah, well, I mean, the first ones. Was it like MySpace or Friendster? Wasn't that yeah. one of them? Friendster. Friendster was um, was was the first one of the first social networks, uh, but it had lots of technical and social issues actually, <laughs> uh, and losing ground to Facebook, MySpace, the other one as well that yeah. was very big. Smartphones. Um, if you're a businessman oh, right. back in the noughties, do you call a BlackBerry? Is that a smartphone? Or... Yeah, yeah, the BlackBerry. Yeah, uh, the first big name in smartphones, and that was uh, for its business professionals because of its email capabilities the full keyboard suite you had there's, there. a, there's a i think there's a netflix um series that quite recently launched which is about that story of of blackberry and them making that phone they did some pretty amazing i mean properly pioneering mm. stuff i mean they really did um and i, do, just, they I got do remember a period yeah i do remember a period where yeah, because all of these companies were like front cover of these magazines, forums, yeah, yeah. and all the rest of it at the time. But I do remember as well when Blackberries were originally for business people, but then they started to move over into mainstream, and yeah. it was quite cool to have one. Yeah. Um. <laughs> this was all pre what Apple's 07 when they yeah Apple's they, 07 they, yeah so it's kind of mid noughties early yeah, to mid noughties peaked, peaked 05 I think yeah. Um. I, I, I won't go into the Palm Pilot, <laughs> but some listeners might remember that. Um, tablets. So obviously oh, you think tablet, not... you kind of yeah. think... Well, obviously iPad. Well, you think but... iPad, and then you think maybe the Samsung tablet. Yeah. Um, but there was a Microsoft tablet PC. Oh, was there? Yeah. So it was an early mover. This was in the early 2000s. Okay. They released a tablet PC. Uh, but it didn't go mainstream, essentially. And it wasn't until... So when did the iPad come out? Do you remember? Uh, I'm, I, I don't know. I'm going to guess 2010. 2010. Was it? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. correct. Okay. Music players. Well, you've obviously got your Sony Walkman, <laughs> which was my first handheld music-playing device with a uh, cassette, bright orange... <laughs> The sport, oh, sorry, bright orange, bright yellow. Sorry, I think I'm right in saying um, the sport model. I mean, that wow. was seriously cool. <laughs> talking, that talking would be seriously cool today if you could pull that out. <laughs> <laughs> but what about M- what about MP3 MP3 players though? Oh, well, that's 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 later. Okay, mm. um, go on. Rio. No. Remember Rio? No. Diamond Multimedia Rio. <laughs> So they were one of the that first companies to make an MP3 player, like a major okay. mainstream MP3 player. Uh, but obviously, then the iPod came out. Yeah, remember well, they yeah. had the. Remember that that the main thing at that time was the wheel. The wheel, yeah. Where there was completely a new innovation at the time that was. Uh, it's classic. You go so you go for for anybody who likes their museums. If you want, if you go to the science museum in London in South Kensington, they've got this great sort of exhibit which is like taking you through the history of these devices and obviously it's going back to the first computers and that kind of stuff but one of their one of their exhibits is how the the mobile phone has sort of evolved and you're you know you've got your kind of gordon gecko sort of gray brick thing you know coming right up to the whatever the the, the iphone 15 or whatever it's actually a really really interesting exhibit and just seeing the crazy evolution 
um, of these things. And it kind of makes you think, well, where do we go next? And actually, mm-hmm. this is and maybe bringing it back to the conversation about multimodal, because where do you go next? Well, maybe, maybe there isn't anywhere to go next with regards to a device you hold in your hand, which has a screen on it that you do archaic things like touch it. I mean, mm. perhaps we've kind of reached the limit of that. And actually now this whole multimodal thing is is really the next sort of people are talking about the next kind of wave where you ditch the device. You don't have a device and you're all essentially or it might be the devices, you know, displayed in your glasses or it's it's just not a device you're holding in your hand anymore and you can talk to it and you get audio you know, as well as visual stuff. And and yeah, so maybe we've reached the limit of what a smartphone is capable of. And then, right, we need to transition to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the guys in the tech team told me earlier this week, he's learning a piano. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. I was like, how are you learning it then? Have you got a teacher? And he was like, no, I just put on my Apple goggles <laughs> and it the, it the augmented reality puts then tells me it reads my keys and flags which keys to press and when right and, it just, yeah. and i just follow it that's cool so yeah that kind of immersion if you like with blending tech and reality um but yeah the other two obviously with electric cars you think tesla who is the one of the first mass produced electric vehicles mass produced in the modern era, modern era yeah mass produced electric vehicle so who was the manufacturer do you reckon well, but one uh, was it BMW? No, there's one oh. before that. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah, um, don't know. General Motors. Oh, really? They had the EV1. Okay, I didn't know that. Uh, EV1 was discontinued amid controversy over its viability and perceived lack of consumer demand at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, well, you can't well, get that wrong. <laughs> so I think what we're talking about here, like you talked about Microsoft's tablet. In the early yeah. noughties, you talk about yeah, yeah. the EV1. So it's it's kind of, it's when first mover advantage, it's kind of when you're too early. Yeah. And the, yeah. we're just not ready for it yet. And you could argue, well, that event had to happen for us to become aware of it so that then we could become ready for it. And like the next person to try it a few years later actually catches the the wave and so with a lot of these things yeah they're kind of pioneering and and but they're too pioneering and so yeah the consumer mm. acceptance and demand it's a bit like these um the, the eyewear i mentioned the eyewear because um didn't google release or was it apple i can't remember one of them released some glasses like years back mm. and it was just a bit of a flop and yet here we are now with apple and their ski goggles and um you know maybe now it's time where it could get mass adoption but yeah when you're too early yeah i mean on that point then so when we talk about say generative ai for example i mean you and i kind of sit on the intersection of working in finance and tech so we talk about it we use it a lot but is that true of the mainstream it's kind of like talking about brexit in 20 16 no one's going to vote for brexit obviously not there's a, such a strong economic argument not to leave the eu and we leave the eu are we a, a little bit of a risk here of that all of the people who are professionals 
which is a, a, a just a subsection of the broader public, yeah. are talking about AI all of the time. What about everyone else? I mean, I just had a quick look. Uh, Deloitte Research said that um, only around 26% of UK adults have interacted with AI. Whereas I did read something um, earlier this week, and I think of young people, so say like your children yeah. who are teens, yeah, that yeah. figure is 70%. Yeah. Makes sense. So my question then is like the, the, the more wide scale adoption when these things are actually genuine co-pilots in all sectors, in all uh, walks of life, is that actually quite a bit further off than what we're kind of the well, hype cycle we're at at the moment? Yeah, but hang on. If Google are just launching Gemini and it's going to be in their Pixel phone and right, Apple, I mean, true. Uh, which one are they going to choose? Which provider? Because surely they're going to have to then follow that, right? And that's in developed economies, rich economies. Well, everyone's got a smartphone, right? So as long as it, as soon as it lands on a smartphone, then it's then your adoption is, it's kind of everyone, isn't it? I mean, I know that's not the case for developing or emerging markets where smartphone adoption isn't there yet because of the price points. But yeah, certainly here. So that that's that's how it's gonna land on everyone's plate and everyone's going to be using it then like if you were to go on facebook and facebook is notorious where it's like i don't know your your auntie pat is like putting up pictures of a cat or something that are completely uh, like in the wrong dimension you really don't know blurred. how close you don't know how close to the truth that is <laughs> I, my auntie is called pat and she say She's a heavy user of, of <laughs> Facebook. She she does, loves nothing more than a, a cheeky Facebook post. Yeah, um, what I'm saying is Facebook have, have released 20 new AI updates this week, right? And, yeah. and one of them, for example, is uh, discovering new experiences using reels in meta AI. I don't think Pat's going to use that feature. Well, that, well hang She's on. too busy so, updating the old... Yeah, but reels, you're talking about Instagram now, right? Right. Pat, anti-Pat's going nowhere, going nowhere <laughs> near Instagram. I mean, Facebook was a was yeah. a leap. Uh, yeah, but no, it's interesting with 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 Meta. I mean, yeah, they're, they're um, you know, I think they do have a lot in their back pocket that maybe mm. they're because I, I remember Zuckerberg quite interestingly said back in the summer. I think it was after their Q two earnings report. And he said that, you know, one of the big unknowns about our business is um, what the revenue growth potential is from our AI suite of AI products. And, you know, only time will tell. And I guess we're as we're moving down the path that we're, they're beginning to introduce these products. And then but it's still too early to really say, well, you know, how much are you going to make out of these? You know, is this going to be me a meaningful step change for your revenue growth rates like NVIDIA? Who that Nvidia's revenue has tripled in mm. like twelve months, right? Um, twelve twenty four months. So, you know, is is there a, a meaningful step change in revenue growth in that kind of order for one of these other big big players? Um, yeah, kind of. Uh, again, my um, my somewhat half baked conspiracy theory that Sam Altman engineered the whole OpenAI situation actually gets reinforced by this latest announcement, I feel, in that that board shakeup was absolutely necessary because they knew that this was coming. 
whether they knew specifically that this was coming, but this yeah. was always going to happen. Their lead, their advantage over the peloton of tech companies is reducing at this point. But tell me then about first movers. Well, and then yeah. you just mentioned Nvidia. So yeah. what's happening with Nvidia's well, advantage? Yeah. So like with any first, by the way, if you are a first mover, it doesn't mean you are going to fail because there's definitely been some very positive first mover scenarios where they have continued to be the dominant player. So NVIDIA, obviously they they have first mover advantage in the chip race for AI um, and and that, like these super compute power. And so NVIDIA's revenue tripled, as I've said, because of their H100 chip, which just, just destroyed all competition. And these... These chips are the most amazing things. Well, ARM or AMD have now, sorry, AMD have come have come in with their own rival chip, and in the and they've called this the MI300X. Um, and in their words, and in the words of the AMD sort of CEO, this is the most advanced AI accelerator in the industry. Um, and they're they're just launching it now. They expect it. Well, they they think it'll be their their fastest product to hit a billion dollars in revenue and they've just launched it they expect to hit a billion dollars by the middle of next year um and they're saying that it's better than the nvidia h100 the problem being and i guess this is back to also open ai and gemini the, the problem is that yes amd have finally come to the table and they have a better chip than the h100 the problem is NVIDIA are about to launch the H200 early next year, right? They're already working on the next gen, like OpenAI. You're going to have ChatGPT5. And whilst Gemini might beat ChatGPT4 by 0.2%, it's not going to beat ChatGPT5, right? And so, you know, it's it's the mover advantage is is a really significant thing. But if you're complacent or you're too early, like some of those examples we talked about, then fine, you get run over. And the hunting pack, who are the biggest companies on the planet, are definitely going to run you over if you're not like full on it all the time in that race to be ahead. And right, fine. We've H100, great, great shit. We're making loads of money, whatever. Where's the 200 coming from and how are we going to make it better? You know, it's kind of that continual strive for improvement it's like an age-old saying it's harder to be at the top than it is to be in the chasing pack yeah in the peloton right it's what made roger federer so great for so long but um anyhow let's talk about microsoft then kind of just to dovetail off the back of that yeah they are potentially facing then more antitrust issues in the uk so what's that all about well, it's the UK kind of getting their, st- sticking their oar in again, like they did with the Activision Blizzard. Uh, so Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard, and it was it was the UK that kind of caused the most trouble there. But here, so they're called the Competition and Markets Authority, all right, the CMA here in the UK. And it's their job to be in charge of antitrust. It's basically to prevent, you know, monopolies, monopoly situations that lead to a single company's you know where the power over something is so great that they have the pricing power to do whatever they want 
So they've got so much share of the market, they can increase the prices to whatever they want to the detriment of the greater good and the consumer, right? So they're always hunting about. So here we go with Microsoft and their relationship with OpenAI. And look, all they've done is that they've, you know, they, they've, um, what was their, the, the way they've described it is on Friday, this is today, they have begun an information gathering process related to Microsoft's ties to OpenAI. So they've they've just begun some inquiries. They're putting it out there. What that means is they have a page on their website where you can literally click and provide um, evidence as to why you think that this is bad and should be stopped. And they've invited certain companies and they've invited anyone really who wants to come on and and give an opinion. And then they that's this is the gathering. And then they read all of this, process it all, and then they make a decision as to whether anybody's got a valid case here or not. Um, but ultimately, what Brad Smith, who's Microsoft's vice chair and, and president, said was that um, you know, ultimately its relationship with OpenAI was very different from an acquisition. So here's the whole point, right? It's not an antitrust case if there's no acquisition or, or merger. And the reason I think that this has suddenly come up, because they've been involved with OpenAI now all year, right? The reason why it's come up is because of the Sam Altman show mm-hmm. over the last month, which has ultimately culminated in Microsoft taking a seat on the board, which they did not have prior to the, the shenanigans going on um, a couple of weeks back. So they now have a seat. It is a non-voting seat. Yeah, I saw this. I was like, that is bullshit. <laughs> I was like, come on. I'm, you're an ob- observer on the board. You're like, observer. So what you stand, there's a big board table and you're stood there in the back as owner of the world's largest company, as funding of this entire business. Yeah, but I'm just, just watching. Yeah, no, the deal between the two, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it isn't, so they paid they they provided 13 billion dollars worth of capital was led to believe right microsoft that is to help open ai with this kind of well to to try and help them stay in front okay then now the deal was that in return microsoft will get certain exclusive rights to you know commercialize open ai's technology basically um and so, and in, and in return, OpenAI gain access to the cloud computing resources of Microsoft, and, and their, you know, to kind of run their large language models and all the rest of it. So, it's this um, relationship, you know, mutually beneficial relationship. Yes, there's thirteen billion dollars somewhere, and it feels a little bit like, on the one hand, that they're paying for something, and, and well, isn't that an acquisition or a partial acquisition of some sort, or? And Microsoft was saying, well, it's it's not an acquisition, and yet now they've got a seat on the board, which means they have a say in how the company's run and and the direction it's going in, and therefore they can influence to their own benefit that, yes, they don't have a voting right, but having a seat on the board is definitely a step up in their influence over the company. So, yeah, it's just one to keep an eye on, I would say. I mean, the CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority, you know, they do love to kind of get themselves in the spotlight. And, um, you know, this is certainly, this has certainly done that. Um, and so it'll probably be a nothing. It'll probably be a nothing burger and, um, there won't be a case, but 
We'll see. The big tech prevails. Yeah. <laughs> Gun what may. All right. Well, look, we'll, we'll wrap up the episode. Thank you very much, Piers. And thanks, everyone, for sticking with us to the end, if you did. And don't forget to, as I saw on Spotify Wrapped, share the podcast on yes. WhatsApp. Yeah. So make use of that. Um, spread spread the word. That would be massively appreciated. And yeah, we will see you next week. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.